0: It's Jared. I don't even know about you, but immediately following George Floyd's death back in June and the protests following that, I saw a significant change in my social media feed. And I'm not talking about an Instagram update or anything like that. I'm talking about the widespread political posts that were being reshared by people. And specifically, posts that were in this infographic style. You've probably seen them before, right? Right. It's usually this pastel background and, you know, some one word phrase, and then you swipe to find all these different facts and images and so on. I later talk about in this episode, so you want to talk about, it. it's kind of like the best example I can think of for this. But what really caught me off guard was not that necessarily it was being shared in large quantities, right? There was this kind of general shift in attitude. So that wasn't too surprising in itself, but it was instead the method that social media conveys large, complex political topics, right? It boils it down into one or two phrases in a very aesthetically pleasing format. And I'm not really making a judgment one way or another as to if this is a net good or a net bad thing, but it's interesting because it's a significant change in the way political information is communicated compared to, say, a newspaper or cable news or something like that. So I thought it would be important to talk to someone who is behind the scenes, who creates these to see what is the process that goes into these and what are some of the ramifications of this being the next political communicative tool. So for today's episode, I sit down with Teddy alvarez Nissen, who has created some very, very popular infographics on everything from the war on drugs to teen suicide. And what I found is really interesting in that the way information is communicated here to some degree is vetted more and to some degree is vetted a lot less than traditional news. And I think, if anything, puts a lot more onus on the viewer opposed to the publisher. And it's just very interesting because I think in a time of heightened political polarization and various other you know changes in the political climate, I think the way we receive our information is really, really important. So if you're interested at all or if you've clicked on one of these posts in the past week, and I know you have, stay tuned. Hey, Teddy. Hey, what's up? Not too much. How are you?
1: Not bad. Not bad. Just sitting around most of my days doing online school. So it's pretty, pretty exciting freshman experience. Oh, oh,
0: yeah. I feel like you and every other freshman are probably feeling that same sort of feeling and expressing it through the same sort of sarcasm. Hey. But I'm really excited for today's conversation. I think You are someone who really does carry the contested message of young people getting involved and kind of educating others on really important topics, so I'm really happy that you're going to be with us today. But before getting into all of the weeds, who are you, and how did you get involved in both political activism in general, and specifically your recent project of Infographics?
1: Yeah, so my name is Teddy Alvarez-Nissan, and I am a student, firstly, I suppose, what I have been doing recently is creating what are called infographics on my Instagram, which are basically just little aesthetic explainers of different social issues. And so anybody who has Instagram has been completely bombarded by these for the last couple months, at least. You'll see them everywhere. It's basically anything that dives into a current topic because Instagram is a very visual platform. You'll have little graphics, little images, titles. It's something that's very pleasing to the eyes. It's not a big wall of text that you might find from other news sources. And it's been a really great way to communicate. I'm also a filmmaker and now radio journalist, I guess, because I'm working with KCRW, put a few radio stories on the air. So I'm basically just stuck at home and trying to <laughs> trying to find any way to exist in the outside world right now i'm like the uh the french revolutionary who's uh, stuck in his bathtub
0: no moron
1: yeah i'm like i'm like the less demented version of that i'm i'm sitting in my bed on my phone so (laughs) hopefully no one comes in and assassinates me
0: yeah well i've heard a lot of metaphors for 2020 but Marat in his bathtub yeah. <laughs> is not one I've heard yet. And I really think it's the best one I've heard so far.
1: I think, no, so many people have become Marat in the bathtub. You just kind of, you're stuck in this isolated position, but everyone has such an incredible platform to be online and to have a presence, to be able to even to share things. So I kind of thought of that. I've I've had that little analogy in the back of my mind this whole time, because everyone's kind of doing the same thing. We're all, we're all cooped up. We're all locked up, but we're, Really extending our reach on social platforms.
0: Yeah, I think that you're 100% correct. And I think for us, at least a contested, it's no exception, right? Like this was something we had thought of before, but probably wouldn't have had the dedication had I not been cooped up and with a mic and Zoom. So I completely agree with you. I kind of wanted to start, I guess. Because infographics in general, we'll get to kind of the, you know, subjective comments about them. But I think in general, they have grown significantly. Like it is a way, I think, for a lot of young people and a lot of social media first in terms of news people of how they get their information. And it is very like, aesthetic right it's information presented in a way that as you said is not this wall of text it's very much like the peak of TLDR in a way so I kind of wanted to first get your thoughts of when going about creating an infographic how do you kind of narrow down something as broad as you know as you said a housing crisis into five slides most of which is pastel colors and images
1: yeah well the first thing is to you wouldn't make it just about housing crisis because the first thing to be successful about it is to be a little bit more specific. And that's what you'll see with almost all of these infographics is, you'll see some people will try to summarize a huge issue in 10 slides or less, which is what you have on Instagram, but you're gonna be a lot better off if you kind of go down to something really, really specific. For me, it's kind of drawing comparisons between two things. And for housing specifically, it was about the pandemic and how there was a certain point in time when the moratorium on evictions was going to expire. And there was a lot of uncertainty about what that would look like for people. So it's getting really specific into that because you can talk to people and make big broad points about things. But what I think the power of, especially Instagram in this format is to teach people something very specific. And you saw that a lot with the rallying behind racial justice, which was, people would take to Instagram, you had artists who were creating posts, I think of the one for Elijah McLean, which Mm -hmm. that was a story that happened months before the pandemic even began. I hadn't heard about it. Most people had no idea about it. And suddenly in this uproar of people talking about these issues, and especially through Instagram, there was an artist who made a post that was kind of a cartoon illustration of all of the events that happened and led to his death. And it's just those 10 slides, people learn about something very specific that you wouldn't really find, or if you found, you wouldn't be interested if you saw it on another news source. And that's kind of the power of it, where you can make broad statements, you can talk about big issues, but I think people have really been effectively utilizing instagram specifically to be educational about something that would not interest people otherwise and you'll see like the account so you want to talk about is probably the most
0: yeah i was probably going to mention that as the Uh, yeah the most commonly posted where it's just a monochrome kind of background and then you have so you want to talk about mentioned an issue but
1: yeah and you'll some of them will be broad but you'll notice a lot of them i mean they're they're really really popular account and they get the kind of following that you would expect a celebrity on Instagram to have, but instead they're posting about niche social issues, which is something that didn't exist, especially on Instagram. That was not really an aspect of life on social media, at least a mainstream one before the pandemic, before June, before George Floyd. I mean, that was the big Kickstarter of all of this Mm -hmm. was, and I know we'll be talking about this a lot, kind of this culture that came for a couple months And it's unfortunate that it's died down, but people have goldfish attention spans. I'm surprised that people stuck so long with being politically engaged. But (laughs) I mean, we all experienced it, especially on Instagram, where it was, we're gonna take some time. I don't wanna see you posting a picture with your friends on the beach. You shouldn't be with your friends at the beach because we're in the middle of a pandemic. It was kind of, don't talk about yourself. We're not talking about you right now. We're talking about racial justice. We're talking about inequality. We're talking about Trump. We're talking about things that need to be talked about. Mm -hmm. And one of the big, I know I'm going on a bit of a tangent, but it's kind of one of the big things that contributed to infographics and political speech becoming so present on social media was a lot of people recognized that You kind of could reach this threshold where you're saying, I don't want to see you post anything but social issues. I don't want to see you post anything but things that are relevant to the conversations about inequality right now. And suddenly you can raise the profile of these issues. You can raise awareness of creators who create infographics and you get people engaged. And obviously that has kind of fallen out a little bit. You see with the election, there's a surge in people. Sure talking about politics on social media but it unfortunately I'm not sure what the future is for that
0: yeah I would agree with you almost on everything you said there especially I think the first time this caught my eye at least the widespread use of reposting you know very popular infographics was from George Floyd and all the kind of precipitous events that followed because that was a national conversation right in a lot of ways what was you know, exclusively, if you look back to like 1992 and the Watts riots, that basically happened both physically in 2019, but also had probably even a greater scale online in terms of people at least willing to say something, whether that, you know, turns into anything we'll get to in a sec,
1: yeah.
0: but, you know, at least willing to have that conversation. So the issue, unfortunately, is not new, but the way it's being communicated and disseminated definitely is. And I think you touched on a few of the major positive aspects of social media activism and infographics specifically, primarily being that they raise awareness, right? As you said, it allows for people to say, look, this is the topic of conversation and you can't avoid it, right? I'm going to post it. You're going to watch the story because we're all just feeding on social media all the time. So if we're all going to post it, you're going to either have to consume this content or basically drop off the grid. And I think that's something that you wouldn't be able to get otherwise. Yeah.
1: And that's the one thing people won't do is quit social media.
0: Yeah. I mean, people will say they'll take hiatuses, but I generally would agree with you. If you continue to post political things, <laughs> people are going to find it. And again, I would say in general, that does lead to probably an overall rise in knowledge about a certain issue, at least that it's happening in the first place. Yeah. Was there anything else you specifically saw in terms of feedback on your infographics, on other ones that you saw that was really like, wow, this is making you know, a tangible positive difference?
1: Well, for mine, it's hard to tell for me specifically. I think, you know, I've posted, I, I'm i not committed to this. I mean, I'm committed to being an activist and there's a lot of stuff that I do, but as far as the Instagram aspect of it, it's kind of, I do it in bursts if something really, I feel like I see no one else talking about. And the first thing that I posted was, this was in June and it was kind of the conversation. Like I said, it was like, don't post about anything about yourself because we have other things to talk about. And this was after the killing of George Floyd and racial justice was the biggest topic. And you kind of saw at the beginning, it was all centered on police. It was all centered on George Floyd. And then people kind of started branching out into, well, okay, what else is racial inequality affected in the US? And I just was sitting there and I was, I had this idea. I was like, you know, it's kind of weird. You hear about the war on drugs and then the opioid crisis. Well, it's, it's the same issue. It's people dealing with addiction, but they have two very different names. Mm. And they affect two very different groups of communities. And I started looking into it and I started just collecting all these studies of how the reaction has been different because as many people might know, the war on drugs primarily affected black and brown communities and Hispanic communities because of the kinds of drugs that were, pushed into those communities, and that police heavily targeted. While the opioid crisis is, I think it was 79% of people with opioid addiction, or at least who have faced charges for opioid addiction are white, at least at the time of the study. I think that was 2017 that I was reading. And it's kind of interesting to see how the government views those two things differently. So I decided I wanted to make a post about it, just kind of showing an overview of how black people are basically brutalized by the police for their addiction and that more affluent groups and especially the rural and suburban white population that has been more subjected to the opioid crisis there's kind of more of a pathway to rehabilitation and so i just posted that and you know it got immediately like something like 15,000 people saw it and now it's up to like 100,000 but the impact that i think I have had personally after posting that was kind of like this really blew up and it kind of scared me mm. because I know I did the research on it, but there were there were a couple little things that I was a tiny bit inaccurate about that, not things that people really noticed, but things that I just knew. Mm-hmm. And I knew what I wanted to say, and I knew the the broad strokes of everything I was saying was factual. But it kind of freaked me out. It was like, this thing spreads so easily. Mm. At a certain point, I was flipping through Instagram and I was seeing my own post over and over and over again. And it was kind of like, well, now I know what it feels like to be in this position of being one of those people who post something that mm. kind of <laughs> up. If you go on Instagram and you put in hashtag opioid crisis, mine is the first post that shows up. So everyone who searches that will see my post and it's kind of a weird thing to have on your shoulders that so many people are looking at it. And I've done a lot of work after I posted it to like in my bio to have all my sources, to have like Mm -hmm. revised statements, but I'll show you. I mean, I could pull it out, but I was looking at the analytics and 120,000 people interacted with the post over the summer. Only 114 people actually clicked the link to look Mm. at the sources. And so far, I think 22,000 people have shared it, but only 114 people have clicked the link. So I know I did a good job with it. I really did do my research. Yeah. The inaccuracy that I had in it was like this percentage that I had at the bottom, where it was like, I was off by like 3%. I just like did a typo. But I know that obviously people are putting a lot of faith into the things that they see on social media. That's Yeah. 20,000, 20 some thousand people have shared this thing and I'm just sitting there like, oh my God, like, are there things that I'm seeing? I know I put a lot of work into this, but I could have, I could post something that's like totally fake and inaccurate. And I know that hardly anybody is going to check the source. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think you actually hit on a major point there, which is kind of where I was going to go next is that it does raise awareness, but is it raising the right awareness? And I think that's a question that has multiple kind of critiques to it. The first being exactly what you said. is Kudos to you. I think I did click the link in your bio at least once and took some facts to read it. But I'm a political nerd, so it is what it is. But the reason I specifically wanted to talk to you is because I thought your infographics were by far the most tailored and factual that we've kind of covered already in the sense it was not these broad strokes that kind of garnered debate. Instead, it was rather, here's a very focused issue. Here's really the facts behind it. And here's where you can go to make a difference going forward. That said, and as you mentioned, That is not the case, I found, with some, if not a good portion of infographics out there. Vox did a really good video recently, specifically focusing on QAnon and how hashtag Save the Children was basically proliferated in all these infographics to make it seem like kidnapping and sex crimes were these major issues, where really it was a subverted QAnon text put on a fancy background with. A pleasant filter and that also got shared hundreds of thousands of times and have now you know kind of led to this increased rise in internet radicalism granted these are two very different paths obviously um that's a very extreme example yeah. but i did want to kind of get your thoughts as to how can besides the fact that infographic creators should be honest truthful do their research and make sure they're sharing things that are important what is kind of the role either of government, of social media platforms, of ensuring that these infographics are doing the right sort of civic engagement?
1: I mean, this is the worst answer to give, but I think the first thing you kind of put a little bit of responsibility on the people who share, not the people who make them, but regular people who share stuff. Mm. If you're sharing something political, you have some level of consciousness that you wanna make a statement. Mm. But then I think it requires, because like you were talking about with Save the Children, I saw people I know who are the most liberal people you could possibly think of, who just go and like share, 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 and they're sharing, and then you get like mixed into it. There are posts, and this goes for both sides. There are posts sure are manipulated to look like they are from a democratic socialist point of view, or there was, there was this post going around that got over 100,000 likes on it that was trump is st- trying to steal the election he is trying to like strip people of their you know voting rights sign this petition and support voter id laws <laughs> Which, and i saw people i knew were sharing that and if you know what voter voter id is not the position favored by people who would see <laughs> on the left because it disenfranchises a lot of minority communities but it was kind of funny because it's somebody had exactly the right idea of yeah. how to get liberal leaning people to repost something that they would never agree with if they knew what it meant, but kind of taking advantage of that. I don't know. I think we're in this weird situation because you're asking me, what should Instagram do or what should the government do?
0: It's a tough question. I understand this is not, this is something no. that public policymakers don't have an answer to.
1: Yeah. But I, I think for me, my first thing is I really like what Twitter and Instagram and Facebook have done as far as fact-checking. For some people, fact-checking will be like, oh, I guess this isn't true. But for other people, it's like, if big tech and the globalists say that this is false, then it must be true. If it has a fact-check box underneath it, that means that this must be the truth and it's being suppressed. And you'll just never win as long as that kind of thinking is out there. But then it's hard to solve it. It's hard for the tech companies to solve it through automation, because I have seen, this is the same thing. It's kind of in the same vein of that voter ID post. This one guy posted this picture of a bunch of like chimpanzees jumping around and like body slamming each other. And it was flagged and said, this post contains false information. And I saw it, It it was, it was flagged just like something else that would be False. So clearly, there is not whatever these algorithms are that they're using to find these false posts really don't work. They're flagging things that don't make any sense to flag, and they're missing a lot of stuff. So Mm -hmm. it's hard to say if tech companies are even able to contain this problem. And on a government level, you know, a lot of people have the misconception like, if you're posting something on Twitter or on Facebook, and it gets removed. And you say, well, I have First Amendment rights. You can't delete my post. But of course, the First Amendment doesn't apply to Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, at least in a conventional understanding. That's how the law
0: is interpreted right now is that- Yeah, it's only applies to government entities, sure.
1: Exactly. That you know, The Constitution governs the government and that these companies don't have to abide by it. And that's why they're able to censor and delete things. But- I think they understand very well the kind of reach that they have and the massive platform that they have. They need to kind of adopt some of the same principles that the government has in terms of, even if you vehemently disagree with certain things, you can't delete everything. And it's hard, there's so much double talk as far Mm. as false information goes. There's a lot of stuff where it's kind of like, come to your own conclusion. I'm going to put some facts right in front of you and they're going to heavily imply something, but I'm not going to make the implication. That was all you. If you drew that conclusion from the things I just said, and that's kind of the favorite, that's like a big, I think, social media talking point right now. And it's hard to really gauge what the false information is sometimes.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I would agree. It's not easy. And I think this is both on the practical level and on kind of the abstract level, what's supposed to happen. But I guess we'll have to kind of wait and see. And yes, ideally, I think you do have kind of an engaged civic body that would be able to say, you know what, this seems a little bit ludicrous, like we're not going to share this. But that yeah. is the chicken and the egg in the sense that the way you have to engage a community is by giving them political information. But then for them to vet the information, you kind of get into this weird spiral. The last kind of point I want to talk about as far as the role of social media going forward is how do we ensure that people do go beyond the post and click those links and show up and, you know, continue to remain engaged beyond swiping through a post, maybe, maybe saving it, maybe sharing it. Because as we saw, yes, during the George Floyd incident that did garner large support. And I would say probably a lot of people have been disappointed in the tangible action that's come out of that myself probably being one of them, but in the next issue, whatever that might be, how do we ensure that this information goes beyond the screen and then manifest in more traditional forms of engagement.
1: Yeah. I, I take kind of, it's half pessimistic, half optimistic point of view that I have where I don't really think people take direct action from social media. Some people do, but like I said, now I'm somebody who I haven't posted a lot, but the top few posts that I've had that are politically related have gotten about as much attention as most political posts on Instagram do, which is somewhere in the course, somewhere in the area of like 200,000 people interacting with it. And so I get to look at the analytics of how those people interact with my post. And what I see very consistently is that people are about you know, 40 times as likely, something between 30 and 40 times as likely to share the post as they are to click the link to donate click the link to go to the website, look into it any further than just sharing it. So I think the goal should not be, I mean, it should be, but people aren't going to take actionable steps after seeing something on social media, but what they are going to do is spread the message and you get a general culture change. I think Mm -hmm. that, I think that is what social media can do and is going to do in all the stuff that I post on the last slide. And throughout it, I have charities listed, I have organizations, I have donation sites, I have actionable, like, phone numbers to call. But you, I can see barely any people will go and actually interact with those parts of the post. But so many people will share it. And it's okay. I'm not, I'm not, I wish people would do a little bit more. But I think the main power of all of this is that if they're going to share it, if you have 20,000 people sharing this and only 114 clicking on the website, they're playing a very passive role in a broader cultural shift, which I think is a little bit, even if not more powerful.
0: Yeah. I think that's, that's probably fair. And again, cultural shifts happen slowly. So it's very hard to kind of gauge what's going on. And I think there probably is a discussion to be had about like whether those posts are being echo chambered versus, you know, sparking a shift per se. Not again, not anything that the creator or the sharer can do, it's just kind of what is a general role for that. And I th- guess varies on the issue by issue, but in general, I think there's no question that social media is going to both shift culture shift ideology and that the way you tread along that both on the macro and micro level is kind of uncharted territory as much as people like to believe it is right like fact checking is going to change over time there might be a new social media site that is even more politically conducive than twitter is right now or instagram is right now you know and i will we'll we'll have to wait and see obviously is kind of If what's the next step in connecting people to government at a quicker rate, but that's all macro, I suppose. Yeah.
1: And I want to share And this. I promise this isn't me trying to flex anything, but I I think it's interesting though, to look at these numbers because I have on my post and this is kind of the average. If, so this post reached 225,000 people. And then from that you'll get like 13,000 people will like it and 11,000 people will share it, which is interesting. It's almost the same number of people who are interested enough to like the post, will just click those buttons and share it and push it out to their friends. And then 39 people actually went to the website to look at the sources and go to the donation page out of all of those people. So it's like most of the people who are a big chunk of the people who interacted with the post, like wanted to look good and share it on their profile, but hardly anybody was really interested in going further to it. More people clicked on the picture of my face 26,000 people clicked on the picture of my face to see what I looked like and 39 people went to the donation page Hmm. so
0: yeah interesting (laughs) and I think probably closing that gap will be something a lot of people will try to focus on but as you said a culture shift at a minimum is a powerful tool in and of itself yeah before we close out a lot of our dedicated listeners will know that I've been really pushing to hear what all of our listeners have thought on the election and the initial reactions. Again, please email us, I really wanna hear what you have to say. But now that I have Teddy, you're trapped, you're on the Zoom, I, you're not gonna leave. What are your initial reactions to both the election results and this general campaign season? And what can we expect going forward in the quickest summary you can? I know that's a lot.
1: I am I'm am not very optimistic.
0: That's about, a very fair, yeah fair.
1: Well, talking about culture change, I think, I I know, I think it's really obvious that Joe Biden won the election he is not by any stretch the perfect candidate that i wanted but he's definitely leagues beyond trump in my opinion but talking about culture change in social media so many people are feel so intensely about things that are not true and that is because those inaccuracies are allowed to live and have so much reach on social media and so That's what I'm I think that's gonna be the biggest impact of this election is it's not even polarization anymore. It's just it's just a disconnection from reality. It's Mm. groups of people living in two different realities with two different sets of rules. And we'll have to see how that plays out in a larger context.
0: Yeah, that's very fair. I think well, this might be a mini victory or a mini loss, depending on where you are there's no major shift in tide in fact it'll probably be worse who knows some people are waiting for the bloody revolution i'm here for it maybe not we'll see i'll be in my bathtub yeah you'll be in your bathtub uh, infographic away teddy thank you so much for coming on yeah of course it was great great being here Thank you for listening to this episode of Contested. If you like what you heard, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and share this with your friends and family. I'd like to give a big, big thank you to Teddy alvarez nissen for coming on. He does some great work and is doing some own, as you probably heard, independent journalism for KCRW, so definitely go check that out. I also want to give a shout out to Catherine Beck, our new social media manager. She's an amazing part of this team and our graphics, I can say our own infographics, are improving significantly. With that, thank you for helping us understand politics together.